0: All right, let's continue. All right, so during the break, one of your colleagues came and asked me a question. I think it's a good idea for me to sort of share the answer with all of you came in and asked about the barrier in terms of where it is. Now, the thickest portion of this barrier lies between the stratum granulosum and the deepest layer of stratum corneum cells. Because there's a continual secretion of the lamellar cell, of the lamellar body product into the space, that layer will be most substantial. But keep in mind that as the cells move through the layers of stratum corneum, it will remain uh, or will uh, keep some of this barrier with it as it travels through. Now, it's most substantial in the granulosum layer for two reasons. One, because there's a continual um, secretion of lamellar body contents into the space, and the fact that as the cells move through the layers, they spread out and become more flattened. Right, so let's continue with our talk on this stuff, uh, on the um, epithelium. And if you look here, we have another layer. Now the stratum lucidum layer is a layer that is found only in thick skin. Highlight for me. There's a lot of discrepancy in the literature as to what it is and why it's there and why it appears the way it does, but what it is, if you look under a light microscope, you'll see a very thin band of lightly colored cells. And one of the theories as to why it does that is because that is the location of the thickest portion of the lipid barrier. Another reason for that is because these are highly differentiated cells, they've lost their nuclei, they've lost their, their, um, their organelles, but their keratins are not completely arranged in the way that the cell in the layer above them are. So their keratins are there, but they're not quite arranged. Now, interestingly enough, you will not always see the stratum lucidum in all sections of thick skin but you will never see it in thin skin so that's important to remember so if you see a layer of thick skin you think it's thick skin but there's no lucidum don't panic it might not be there you don't always see it okay now moving into the stratum corneum these are dead cells they have no nuclei they have no organelles. They are flattened towards the surface, and they contain keratins that are condensed and arranged into bundles to give these cells their strength. They also have a thicker plasma membrane. One of the reasons for this is because of this water barrier. Okay, and they still remain in the layer of lipid as they move through. Now if you look at it, there's no gradual change between granulosum and corneum, except for thick skin if you count the lucidum. But there's an abrupt change of suddenly I have cells that are completely dead. I have one to three layers of granulosum cells that are, that are nucleated, they have um, organelles in them, and then suddenly I have a layer of dead cells. If you look at your fingertips, you'll notice that there are ridges. And you might not think that the skin around the thing, fingertips are very particularly thick, but that is an example, or the entire palm of the hand for that matter, is an example of thick skin. If you look here, you can see the layers of, skin, of um, corneum and the palm of the hand. is an example where you would see something like this many layers of dead cells. Okay. Now we've talked about the process of cell death and the fact that it's known as keratinization, but what does that really mean? What happens? So we've talked about it quite a bit, so we're just going to summarize here. We have the cell forming in the basal layer. Cell moves through the spinous, the granulosum, In the granulosum layer, it starts producing the keratohyalin granules. It has more lamellar bodies, and so we have the water barrier forming. And then the cell has its keratins arranged in a particular manner in the stratum corneum by the product of the keratohyalin granules. The cells in the stratum corneum, in the deeper layer, they do tend to be a little uh, fatter, but as we move towards the surface, they become completely flat, and when they get to the outermost two to three layers, the desmosomes start to break down. Now, Up and until this point, the desmosomes are very much attached to each other. So we have proteolytic enzyme or proteolytic activity on the desmosomes literally actively breaking them down. And there's a lot of genetic studies done as to how and why this happens. We're not going to get into that much. But the cells are then exfoliated and you have a nice new layer of cells forming. When this process fails, and in particular when there's a higher turnover, what do I mean with high turnover? It means that the cells are broken down or the desmosomes are broken down faster than they should. We have an example here um, as psoriasis. And what happens is, what you see here, these white scaly portions are areas where the cells are keratinized, they're dead, and the raised red portion are keratinocytes that are exposed to the surface but they still have their nuclei, they still have their organelles, they're not keratinized at all. And so they're irritated because you don't want cells to be exposed to the surface. One of the reasons why we have thick layers of stratum corneum in the the hands and and the soles of the feet is because those are areas that have high abrasion, lots of traffic. The stratum corneum protects the deeper cells from getting irritated, from getting damaged. And here, the reason why you, say, where you see that it's, it's red and raised is because these cells are not supposed to be exposed to the outside. What happens here is the, hem- uh, the desmosomes are being broken down too quickly. And so I have cells exposed to the surface that shouldn't be. Interestingly enough, mild forms of psoriasis on the scalp is also what causes dandruff. Now, there's varying degrees. Uh, The scalp is one of the most common areas where psoriasis is found. Also, the elbows, the the knees, and you can have psoriasis anywhere in the body, but mostly the elbows and knees, um, as well as scalp, is the most prominent regions. Now we talked about thick skin and thin skin and stratum corneum and all kinds of things. If you, again, I'm going to bring your attention back to the palms of your hands, specifically your fingertips. If you look closely at it, you'll see little ridges. And those ridges are formed by two processes. The first one is the epidermis extending into the dermal layer. And because it extends into the dermal layer, sending these pegs known as reet, regi, reet, reet ridges, it pulls with it the strano, stratum corneum, which are thick layers of cells, and it forms this wavy appearance. Now at the same time, I have the dermis extending into the epidermis, anchoring it. They anchor each other together, or they anchor the two together and those are known as dermal ridges or dermal papillae. Now, one of the reasons why we have that on the soles of our feet and the palms of our hand is because those are areas that have a lot of traffic. We use our hands a lot, we walk around a lot, so we want those areas to be protected even more. And to increase the surface area of the stratum corneum, these ridges are closely packed together, and so you see the reaches on the external surface. And they are the basis for fingerprints, otherwise known as dermatoglyphics. And the reason I have these this zipper up here is because the epidermal projections and the dermal projections fit into each other like a zipper. They interlink. And you can see it very nicely on any section that's made Perpendicular to the surface of the skin. Now I've talked about the epidermis, and we need to talk about the dermis. Tell me quickly what is the what is one of the major um, things that you've learned about epithelium in terms of vascularization? It's avascular, right? The skin, the epidermis is what kind of tissue? It's epithelium, so it's avascular, right? I need to have a layer just deep to the epidermis consisting of loose connective tissue containing multiple blood vessels so that nutrients can be uh, transferred via diffusion. So the layer of dermis found directly beneath the epidermis is going to be consisting of loose connective tissue. The layer deeper to that is the one that lends it its strength and elasticity, and that is going to be the reticular layer consisting of dense, irregular connective tissue. Let's talk about the papillary layer first. I've pretty much mentioned all of this as well. Something I haven't mentioned is that the dermis also contains smooth muscle sometimes. All of the epidermal appendages will transform through the dermis, sometimes found in the deeper layer of the dermis or even the hypodermis. Now, certain parts of the body, such as the areola, the perineum, has a layer of smooth muscle within the dermis, and that allows for the skin to move, especially the skin around the erectile organs, to make sure that that skin stays healthy and that it can stretch and go back to the way it's supposed to be. Here's um, the smooth muscle components of the dermis control the hair, and we'll talk about this in more detail when we do the hair follicle. So, in talking about the papillary layer, here we said it has loose, it's loose connective tissue, contains a lot of blood vessels, and it extends into the epidermis as these ridges or dermal papillae. Now, it mainly consists of type 1 and 3 collagen fibers, a little bit of cells, and some very fine elastic fibers. These fine elastic fibers don't have any particular arrangement. They're just um, an irregular bundle of fibers. And when you look here, you can see a lot of cells, and we know that's indicative of loose connective tissue. One of our sensory organs are also found in this layer, and those are the Meissner's corpuscles. If I go deeper to that, into the reticular layer, you can actually see the abrupt change here in terms of number of fibers, the coarseness of the elastic fibers, and then also the type of collagen. The type of collagen found in the reticular layer is mostly type 1. They're arranged in a slightly more um, regular or slightly more arranged um, pattern crossing each other. And they form, if you look at the skin and you pull on the skin like that, you'll see that if you push the skin together, it forms little ridges. The arrangement of collagen in this layer of dermis is responsible for those ridges forming when you compress the skin. So let's go back to our young woman and see if you can answer this question for me. Right, so we have quite a, a different range here. So let's have a look. Consists of dense, regular connective tissue. Which layer is that? That's a deeper layer of the dermis, right? So which cells are we talking about? Which cells are we talking about? You're talking about? melanocytes, which of the following is a characteristic of the first, oh sorry, first layer of the tumor invaded melanocytes lie in the basal layer. So the first layer of dermis is going to be the papillary layer. That consists of what kind of connective tissue? Loose connective tissue. And which one of these is a characteristic of loose connective tissue? more cells than collagen fibers loose connective tissue contains fine elastic fibers particularly in this case abundance of blood vessels remember epithelium is avascular dense regular connective tissue that is going to be nowhere near the skin Dense regular connective tissue, we find in which, what kind of tissues? What kind of structures? Tendons, ligaments, okay, not the skin. All right. So deep to the the dermis, we also have a layer of fatty tissue or subcutaneous tissue. And this is known as the hypodermis. Now, if you do a section through the hypodermis, this is a special trichrome stain. You can actually see that we have a lot of glands in there, we have some adipose tissue, and a lot of spaces. And the reason we have a lot of spaces is because of all the adipose tissue that we find in there. Now it varies in thickness between different parts of the body. It also varies in thickness in people living in different parts of the world. It It serves a very important function in terms of energy storage and so on. So here I have a picture to show you. You'll see this firsthand when you get into the lab during the next uh, module. But you can see here the layer of subcutaneous tissue around the abdomen looks very different to that around, for instance, the neck or even the upper limb. All that you see here, except for around the hands, which still have skin on them, all of this is subcutaneous tissue or hypodermis. Now, we've talked about epidermis and dermis and hypodermis, but there's still more to do. One of the important functions of skin is regulating temperature. And one of the, the way in which it does that is by picking up the temperature from the external world, but also secreting products that allow the body to cool down. And it does so via um, the sweat glands, the eccrine glands. We also have other glands, so we have hair follicles and hairs, and in order for the hairs to stay healthy, we do in fact need some sebaceous secretions, and so we have sebaceous glands as well. And then in certain parts of our bodies, we have apocrine glands. All of these structures that we're going to talk about here on the next few slides are ingrowths from the epidermis. They're ingrowths from the epidermis, And they're derivatives of the epidermis, so embryologically they form from the same structure. I'm going to talk about the hair follicle first. The hair follicle has several components. It has the um, outer component, which is actually the out or the ingrowth or the invagination of the epidermis, and that is known as the external root sheath. We'll talk about that on the next slide, really. But if you look at the hair follicle, if you cut through it, Even if you cut through a section perpendicular to the skin, I shouldn't do this, right? I should do this. Because hair follicles are only found on thin skin. I can see either cross sections or longitudinal sections. Most of the time I can see both of them at the same time. They have different components. They have an infundibulum, which is the portion that communicates with the surface of the skin. I have the isthmus, which is a slight narrowing as we move down. And then we have the inferior segment. The inferior segment contains a very important portion of the hair follicle, and that is the bulb. And in the bulb here, you'll notice that it's stains slightly darker. It has a lot of stem cells, melanocytes. uh, It has some uh, basal cells in there as well. And the areas within the bulb of the hair, you'll see these little almost looks like little pinchers. In each of those pinchers, I have a large amount of cells that are going to differentiate into to skin cells, melanocytes, some uh, basal stem cells, and that is known as the hair matrix cells. And they're responsible for forming the hair. Now, if you look here, this is a very good example of a dermal papillae or hair papillae. Uh, which also contains some stem cells as well as um, some nerve fibers. Now a nerve fiber will wrap itself around the hair follicle pretty much all the way around the inferior segment. And One of the functions of this is to pick up changes in position of the hair. So if we do a section through the hair, there's the hair papilla or the dermal papillae. We have the root sheath, the outer root sheath, which is here. We have the inner root sheath, which is there. And then we have the actual hair and the matrix cells. The matrix cells stain very um, darkly. The reason for that is because there's a lot of melanocytes in there. And the melanocytes are responsible for secreting the amount of melanin and the type of melanin that gives us hair color. So it's kind of cool. This here is a nice drawing. I like this drawing because it shows the different portions of the hair follicle and how it differs from the portions of the hair. So here we have the hair, which has a inner cortical region, uh, outer cuticle, and the outer cuticle really consists of keratinocytes that sort of fold over each other almost in a scaly type of appearance. Now this has... A separation from the internal root sheath via the cuticle, which is this layer here. The cuticle of the inner root sheath is the layer that's directly adjacent to the hair itself. Then we have different parts of the inner uh, root sheath, which we're not going to talk about in detail. We also have something known as the glassy membrane. The glassy membrane is essentially the equivalent of the basal lamina. So it separates it from the surrounding dermis. If we look at the hair itself, we talked about the hair having a cortex. Um, Some types of hair, especially when they are thicker hair, will have a medulla. Basically all that means is that the cortex has broken down in the midline and it has a little bit of space. We walk towards the, or move towards the um, upper area, the isthmus, just past the isthmus to the infundibulum, we'll see here attached to the hair our sebaceous gland. Sebaceous gland opens into the hair follicle. That is why I will always find the two together. Right? I will never find a hair follicle without a sebaceous gland or vice versa. We also have a little bit of smooth muscle here, the erector pili muscle, and that is what's responsible for pulling the hairs upright for various reasons. could be a chill, could be some other reason. And why does it do that? It's part of thermoregulation. Hmm. Oh. I have another question for you. All right. Wonderful. Which cell type are we talking about? We're talking about melanocytes still, right? Where are they found? They're found in the bulb. All right, so the next epidermal derivative that we have to talk about are the nails. Now, something I didn't mention to you is that we have two different types of keratin. We have soft keratin which is what we find in the layers of the epidermis. Then we have hard keratin, which is what forms the hair and the nails. Now the nails are plates of keratin. No, not cells, just keratin. So if you look here, if you look at the nail bed, you have a little um, piece of skin that's growing over the nail, and then you have this region which is sort of raised, that there is known as the epinesium, and that's this little bit here. And the nail sticks into the area of the epinesium and it has, just deep to it, the nail matrix. And very similar to the matrix that forms the hair, we have the nail matrix containing the keratinocytes that's producing the keratin. And we also have some melanocytes in here. We have some Langhans cells and so on and so forth in this space as well. Now, the keratinocytes will produce keratin. The keratin is a different type of keratin. It's hard keratin, and it's going to be pushed out along the nail bed to form the nail. Now, if you lift up the nail, just un, don't lift it up too far, please. If you lift up the nail or you pull back on the skin of the fingertip, you'll see a very soft collection of connective tissue known as the hyponesium. And the hyponesium has a lot of sensory fibers in them, very sensitive, very um, specifically to pain. Now, nails grow differently depending on the individual, depending on where you are, but approximately one millimeter per week. um, It's quite an extensive growth. And when you look at the nail, and you can see this on yourself, is as the keratin is formed, the keratin becomes translucent. And so you can tell a lot by just looking at someone's fingertips. You can tell if they're cold. You can tell if they're oxygen-deprived because the underlying um, tissues will shine through the nails. Yeah, and so you can see if somebody has lots of bloods. Blood supply or um, has a deficiency in uh, oxygen and so on. It's kind of nice. Now, we talked about the hair follicles, and we said that hair follicles are always associated with sebaceous glands. The sebaceous glands secrete a product known as sebum. It's a viscous product, it's oily. The reason for it being produced is to make sure that the hair does not become brittle and start to break off. Our hair, especially on areas of the skin that's exposed, is quite important for thermoregulation, right? If you look at this, the sebaceous gland here, you'll notice that it has a sort of an acinar appearance, um, and it has a number of cells that fills this area here, and this is known as the secretory portion. But the secretion is holocryin. So what happens? The cell produces its product, its sebum, starts to die off. Cell processes, the nuclei, the organelles, all of this is broken down. And then it breaks open and the product is released onto the surface of the hair, into the hair follicle, and goes onto the skin surface itself. Now, the reason why it stains clear with H&E is because of the type of product that we have in there. When we look at it, we can see nice, clear patches, always associated with my hair follicle. Now, we've talked about hair follicle. Here we have a nice one. We talked about the sebaceous gland, which we can see over here as areas of um, deficiency in staining, let's put it that way. And a nice smooth muscle here. And this unit is known as the sebaceous unit. We'll talk about it a lot in the lab as well. You we'll go through as to what happens. So, when it's cold or when there's movement on the hair, the smooth muscle will contract. And that will cause the hair to stand upright, like um, in instances when you have a chill, or it would allow the hairs to relax when that's not. Um, necessary. It also picks up subtle movements and part of the hair follicle will pick up subtle movements in terms of position of hairs and things, mostly on um, other animals, but if you're sitting and you have a breeze going across your arm, you can, can tell the, the, the uh, direction of the breeze coming across your arm as well, and that's all part of the function of this unit. Yes. 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 Thank you for reminding me. So when you're sitting um, and you get a chill or you get cold, the muscle cell or the, the smooth muscle contracting is one of the reasons why we get goosebumps. So the muscle pulls on the hair follicle, the hair stands upright, and because of the shift, we have a goosebump. Okay. Talking about sweat glands, there's a lot to say about sweat glands. You've done glands when you did epithelium, so I'm going to briefly touch on it. Sweat glands are found in all types of skin. There's two different stimuli for producing sweat. There is a heat-triggered or a temperature-triggered stimulus, and then the, there is also the, what is known as the emotional stimulus or the anxiety portion, which is why you have severely sweaty palms when you're going in, to go into your exam. So there's two different triggers. The amount of secretion and the type of secretion differs depending on the stimulus. Now if you look at a sweat gland, you look here, we have two portions. We have the secretory portion, And we have the duct. Sweat glands are simple, coiled ducts. So like if you take a piece of string and you let it get coiled, that's what happens. So when you cut through the skin, you will be able to see both secretory ends as well as ducts in the same section. Don't think that when you see something like this, you're looking at two different different glands. No, it's the same gland. Because it's coiled, you can see both. As it moves to the surface, something else happens. So we have the coiled end at the bottom like that, right? Sorry, guys in the back, I know you can't really see. But as it moves towards the surface of the epidermis, it will start to spiral more and more and more. And I have a slide on the next, um, a a picture on the next slide that will show you that nice coil appearance. So the secretory portion is actually quite deep. It can be in the dermis, sometimes even as low as just between the junction of the dermis and the hypodermis. It's very deep, and it's very easily identified for three major reasons. And look at it here. The first thing is it looks like there's a number of different layers of cell. But if you look closely, the secretory portion has pseudostratified. Pseudostratified epithelium. Why? Because all of the cells touch the basal layer. I have two different cell types. I have clear cells, which are these ones here. And then I have dark cells, which are slightly less numerous. They have a lot of secretory granules. And these two cell types produce different products. The clear cells are responsible for secreting our uh, serous products, which is usually a watery fluid, contains very similar to to plasma um, and to the excretory fluid that would actually be formed in the kidney, interestingly enough. So it has some urea in it, it has some waste products in it, and so on and so forth. The dark cells are more responsible for producing proteins. What do they have? They have rough endoplasmic reticulum. Rough endoplasmic reticulum indicates formation of proteins. Now, as the fluid moves into the lumen of the gland here, it's secreted into the lumen. So we don't have the same type of secretion as we did with the sebaceous gland. The product is secreted into the lumen via um, the apical portion of the cell. It moves into the space, and the fluid is added onto by the dark cells. Now, it's not just secreted into the luminal surface, but also into the lateral surfaces. And the portion of um, the secretion by the clear cells that's secreted into the lateral surfaces of the cells are added onto by the dark cells. So they're sort of mixed in between each other. As the secretion moves through the duct, a large portion of the secretion is actively reabsorbed, so that with what you have at the end is a hypotonic solution. Okay. Also lining the secretory portion here, which is the, Third thing that makes it very um, prominently identifiable are these flat cells, and those are the myoepithelial cells. What myoepithelial cells do, they're only found in the secretory portion because when they contract, they help push the secretion into the lumen. That's what they do. The duct is different. The duct is darker stained because of the cell type that we have. It's usually consisting of stratified cuboidal cells. There's only a few places in the body where we have stratified cuboidal. This is one of them. And so they stain darker because they have slightly less cytoplasm, larger nuclei. There's also active absorption in this portion, so they appear darker. So here we have a duct, very nicely dark stain. I've said pretty much all of this already. And there we have a secretory portion with the myoepithelial cells here. And there is a sweat gland moving to the surface of the skin. You can see that it spirals as it moves up. Its secretory portion is right down here in the dermis, but the duct goes all the way up. Just a different um, section here, we have a nice trichrome stain, so you can see the difference between the collagen which is surrounding it and the epithelium, which lines the ducts. And a nice close-up here of the myoepithelial cells. All of these arrows are pointing to myoepithelial cells, and there's the lumen with the secretion in the middle. Now we have apocrine apocrine glands. Apocrine glands are found in very particular portions of the body, mostly the armpits, the perineum, And they're called apocrine glands because initially it was thought that this was their mode of secretion. But, please highlight for me, their secretion mode is merocrine. It means that they secrete their products straight into the lumen. Now, I put here secrete pheromones. This is mostly in other animals. The fluid that they secrete is very different to the fluid that's secreted by Uh, sweat glands, and they're also secreted into the hair follicle. They're closely associated with the hair follicle. They have the same type of appearance as the um, sweat gland, but they're going into the hair follicle. They have a different type of secretion. It's a little bit more um, uh, serous, and it doesn't have all of the components that sweat has. Interestingly enough the secretion by the apocrine glands is completely odorless. It doesn't have any odor because it doesn't have many compounds to it, it's mostly water. It becomes or changes its odor when it mixes with the bacteria on the skin. I so thought that was kind of cool. So here again, apocrine gland, you can see something that's very evident when you're looking at an apocrine gland is that the lumen is large very large, there's less distinction between the glandular or secretion portion and the duct, except for the size of the space, and you don't see as many duct portions together with the secretion portions when you do a section through the apocrine glands. Last thing that we need to touch on is the nerve supply. Now, we've talked about a lot of it. We've talked about um, the fact that the skin is important for conveying information from the outside. Now, here we have an example of two little corpuscles. Here's the Meissner's corpuscle, which is in the papillary layer, and the Pacinian corpuscle, which is deep in the dermis, sometimes even in the hypodermis. And knowing their location helps you define what they do. We start off by talking about various types. So we have various types of nerve supply. We have our mechanoreceptors, which are all in the form of something known as a corpuscle. And the corpuscles, basically what they do is they have different modes of of, um, detecting the changes, but what they do is they detect change. Free nerve endings on the other end, which you can which looks similar to the Merkel cells here. don't have a picture of it, though. Free, endi- free nerve endings are specific for picking up pain and temperature and things like that. We're going to talk about each of them in detail. So when you're thinking of a th- free nerve ending, what I want you to think of is a paper cut. Everybody here, I'm sure, has had a paper cut right? It hurts. It hurts a lot. Why do I want you to think about it? It's because the free nerve ending is traveling into the epidermis, and when you have a paper cut, it doesn't necessarily bleed. So it hasn't gone all the way into the dermis, but it still hurts. It's because the free nerve ending travels through all of the layers, except of course the corneum, of the epidermis extends in and travels and branches throughout. Now, sadly, these little nerve endings can't really tell the difference between the different sensations it picks up. It feels pain, it feels temperature, hot and cold, but for the most part, initially, there's a bit of confusion. So if you take your hand and you place it on a hot plate, you don't immediately know it hurts. You have the reflex, and then later on it starts to hurt. It's because the nerve fibers here pick up that it's hot, but only later on pick up that it's hurting. If you touch something cold for a long enough time, what happens? It starts to hurt. Same nerve fibers, so temperature, pain, all of these things are picked up by the free nerve endings. They also tend to wrap themselves around hair follicles, which is why when you pull out a hair, it hurts. One of my favorite of the sensory perception, or sensory corpuscles of the skin is the Pacinian corpuscle. Not only is it a very, very pretty thing to look at, because it looks like the cut end of an onion, it's large. If you look at a section of skin, without even putting it under the microscope, you can actually see it. They're huge. What is it? We have a nerve fiber in the middle, with a bunch of swan cells, that are arranging around it in concentric circles. Now, when you put your hand down on something and press, the Piscinian corpuscle is picking up the change and the displacement between one end of the Piscinian corpuscle and the other end. Picks up the change in layers. We have a fluid that's sort of very similar to lymph that lines that lies between the uh, concentric layers, and it's very particular for pressure. Think about it, putting pressure. It also picks up certain frequencies of vibration. Here you have a beautiful Pacinian capacity. You can see this is in the hypodermis, very, very, very deep. Meissner corpuscles are very close to the epidermis. And what they look like, now it's described in the textbook as a um, shine, of, or shine of, of wool. When I look at a Meissner corpuscle, what I see is a tub. Why? Because it has this kind of conical appearance and it has a lot of Schwann cells wrapped around them in an irregular fashion. The same sort of construct picks up the same type. Um, it also picks up a, 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 a vibration stimulus, sort of a more low frequency, and the way it picks it up is different to the Pacinian corpuscle because it doesn't pick up displacement. It picks up the, um, how do I explain this? picks up the difference between one side and the other side of the meso. So when you have your hand down, it picks up the low frequency, the small, subtle changes in this part of the dermis. I think that's the best way of describing it. Slow vibrations, low frequency vibrations. All of these are mechanoreceptors. And here again, we can see a mason's corpuscle corpuscle. there. They're always found in the papillary layer, squished up against the epidermis. Always, always. Now, Ruffini corpuscles are ones that you will not really see under a light microscope. They have a sort of a flattish appearance. They have a nerve fiber coming in, branching out. And instead of having the Schwann cells wrapped around, it has a capsule that's fluid-filled. And they pick up specifically stretch and torque. So if I were to pull at my skin, stretching it or pulling at it and letting it, that's the raffinis corpuscles. Now, all of these, as I said, has a similar appearance. And remember, we have the myelin covering the nerve ending all the way up and until it enters the corpuscle region, which is the capsule. All right, ooh. Okay. When a patient comes to you and says that when I touch it, it's sensitive, what do they mean? It hurts, okay? It's painful. Which of the nerve endings is responsible for picking up pain? The free nerve endings. The answer is C. None of the other options would be something a patient would come to you and say. So, um, when I hold my hand on something for a long period of time, I don't feel anything. Patients don't do that. They come for pain. Okay, it's sensitive, sensitive to pain. To check the integrity of the other ones, we would actually have to do something to the patient. We'd have to do a physical exam, press on them, ask them what they feel. Okay, so the answer, free nerve endings. We're dealing with pain. All right, I have here a comparison between thick and thin skin, why? because it's very nice to look at it, very easy to compare them when they're side to side. Keep in mind you have to be able to do this. All right. We have about a minute, I think. I can't see this thing there. Talking about burns, again, what type of nerve ending are we dealing with here? Free nerve endings. Okay. When we're talking about burns, we have different degrees. We have first, second, and third. And what that relates to is how deep it's gone. First degree is only the epidermis. Second degree, epidermis and dermis. Third degree is so bad it goes all the way through to the subcutaneous tissue. And this is the one that he- takes the longest to heal. It's the most painful Which one of these will result in loss of fluid? Both second and third. Why? Because where's the water barrier? It's in the epidermis. This one might, if it's severe enough, will cause blisters. I'm sure you've seen it. You've been in the sun on the beach a little too much because you just finished your exam. Okay, you can form blisters from sunburn. One of the major problems of burns is loss of fluid. So tying back to our epithelial water barrier, it's not just to keep fluids from entering the body, but also helps us keep the fluid inside the body, which is why burns in severe form can lead to dehydration. Alrighty guys, I will see you in the lab.